It's great to have you guys all here in the AV team. It's good to see you guys. Uh, but man, just thank you guys for being here today. And this is sort of our first step. We're going to see how it goes today. And then um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to begin to put some more people in here and continue to grow back into the, uh, the, the church family that the Lord's given us. So we're looking forward to that. I wanted to give you quickly um, a little update about Uganda. I know last week I let you know that we sent some reserve funds over there to help them. And um, next week we'll have a couple of pictures. But I want to let you know that this last week, Pastor James has sent us um, many, many, many pictures and some videos of them distributing literally thousands and thousands of pounds of food to people. Um, and I thought it was pretty cool, you know, you're doing a third world country and, and you sort of take your life in your own hands when you have food for people with people that don't have food. And um, they were kind of concerned about the delivery process. And the Lord, through the government, provided armed escorts for them. <laughs> Um, to be able to deliver the food, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so we'll give you some pictures of that. I just wanted to let you know that that's happening, and it was really amazing to be kind of a small part of that. Um, we we'll also want to let you know that you can serve at Friends of North Richmond. We're going to start uh, signing people up in June and, and try to take the, the month of June, take a day each week that's just like our church family um, taking care of, of two of their shifts. They have two shifts a day. Um, and it's perfectly safe. We've been out there, and, and um, uh, some of our people have worked out there, and they, they did a good job of getting it all ready for us. So we're going to do that. You'll see that sign-up come up um, pretty soon. And then we're also going to do um, another per non-perishable food, um, canned food drive. Um, that was one of the things we saw when we were there. I would say the day we were there this week that that room was probably about a third full of what it needs to be uh, because they give out they have dozens and dozens of cars a day, hundreds of people every week that they're serving with food. So we're going to do another uh, food drive here in June. Just kind of wanted to put that in your heads and heart. I'd also want to encourage you, man, that how can you serve somebody now? Don't wait on us to help you learn how to do it, to figure it out. Somebody in your life right now can use you serving them. Uh, maybe there's a, a mom in your neighborhood and she's moved from being full-time mom to full-time mom and teacher and cafeteria lady, you know, and homeroom teacher and all that stuff. Um, and maybe you can just encourage uh, some mom in your neighborhood this week or a frontline worker, a healthcare worker, drop a, a, a gift card at their doorstep or something, but just, you know, serve someone this week. Um, there's some way for you to do that, okay? Um, so we're going to be in, in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there, we should have it up on the screen. <clears throat> Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. And, and I, I tried to tell you when we got started, uh, when we started the book of Hebrews, um, that Hebrews is not a lightweight book. It is not for wimps. Um, if, if you are, and I'll say it this way, if you're serious about growing with the Lord, if you're serious about maturing in the Lord, um, then Hebrews is the book for you. I think it is the dividing point in New Testament scripture between I'm going to follow Jesus as a child, I'm going to follow him in sort of this infantile, childish way, and I'm going to follow him with all my head, heart, soul, mind, strength, and body. I'm going to do everything I can to serve him. I want to grow up in my faith. I think Hebrews is that book that really clearly divides between those two groups of people. So if you're really serious about having a strong faith, if you're really serious about loving the Lord and living for him, Hebrews is the book for you. Uh, because otherwise it is really hard, okay? Um, so I'm excited about what God's got for us today, um, and I hope you are too. But we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10 um, as we get going. And we're just going to start with verse 1. kind of gets us um, going this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, For the law 
since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, it can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So Hebrews is the book that distinguishes clearly between a shell of Christianity, uh, um, things that are suggested in Christianity, um, and the real meat of Christianity. It helps us to see the difference between shadow and substance, uh, between things that are uh, a picture or a representation of our relationship with God and the reality of our relationship with God. And I would say some of us this morning were stuck in those shadow places. We're stuck in religious practices. We're stuck in doing things that we're supposed to do, rules for living. Uh, we're stuck in moral appearances. We want people to see us a particular way. Um, we're stuck in emotional feelings over relationship. Jesus provides a flesh and blood reality to our walk with God. He takes us beyond those shadows. And I want to encourage you, not just this morning, but as you're thinking about, man, do I want to be a baby Christian or do I want to grow up? While you're thinking through that, I want to encourage you not to settle for less than the fullness of walking with Jesus. Trust him with your pain and your loss and your fears and then live every day differently because Jesus really will provide. This is mature Christianity. A shadow can't keep you close to God. And some of us are stuck in that shadow relationship. And therefore, when we go through difficult times, like some of us have gone through here in the last eight, ten weeks, we go through these difficult times, we feel ourselves drifting far away from God. And it's because we have a shadow relationship with him. And we want to push past that to the reality of the relationship that we can have with God. So let's go again, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, when no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I think we have two overarching messages here in Hebrews chapter 10. I think Hebrews chapter 10, well really, 9 and 10 serve as sort of a bridge between all these things that we find out about why Jesus is so amazing, and he is. All these things that we find out about why Jesus is superior, and he is. We get all that kind of information, and then you're kind of left with, what do I do with it? Sort of the so what question. And I think chapter 10 serves as the transition between Jesus really is better, what does that matter? Jesus really is better, what do I do with it? So there's this sacrifice of Christ that we're going to look at. And I also think it begins to speak into our sacrifice, the lives that we should be living um, every day. And Hebrews 11 is really clear about it. That's sort of what we call our hall of faith chapter. You get all these very clear examples of what it means to live in a broken way um, for God in faith and as a daily sacrifice. Um, but chapter 10 hints at that. It begins to imply that, I think, as we go through it. So there's the sacrifice uh, of Jesus but he starts with the sacrifice in the Old Testament. He brings that up one more time, doesn't he? 
excuse me, he says, every sacrifice, every drop of blood, every burnt offering, every time they, they cranked up those fires or they had to slaughter another animal, every time they did it, it would sear this truth into people. For thousands of years, they did those sacrifices, guys. Daily, for thousands of years. And every time they did it, this truth began to get seared into these people. That real life, true life, isn't possible unless someone does something to not only erase your sins, but transforms you from a sinning enemy of God to a righteous child of God. You have no hope for real life, not only that your sins would be removed, but that you are no longer an enemy of God. That you would be a child of God, a righteous, something had to come to make this happen. And it was a high price, it was life. A life had to be given for your life. Some death had to happen so that you wouldn't have to die. Some sacrifice had to happen to make this possible. So I think there's this, that's the big truth that Jesus has done this, and we're going to see it again and again. He is that sacrifice. But I also wonder if there's not another, like a secondary message here. And it really gets pressed into us in faith in chapter 11. I wonder if it's this, that living close to Jesus is a life of sacrifice. That when you live close to Jesus Christ, you're going to live a life of sacrifice. A life of laying ourselves down. Of suffering through a world of sin so that other people can see the glory of God revealed in us. That we would be living sacrifices is what Romans says, right? I wonder if that's the other message that we get here as we read about Jesus' sacrifice. How can we really emulate Jesus? How can we imitate this Jesus who we are saying is the best, he's superior, he's, he's the, the, the greatest thing that God could ever do, the greatest person in the universe. How can we say that that's true and want to emulate him, that Jesus really is better than everything, unless we live every day as a sacrifice, unless we bend our will to his will, unless we say his words, we think his thoughts, we do his work at any cost and at all cost. That we worship God moment by moment. We let other people see his greatness in us. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice. Not so we would gain the release and the forgiveness of our sins, but because we have already been given those things. Because our Savior was consumed by sin. He was consumed by the wrath of God. He was consumed by death on that tree. So because of that, we can live a life of sacrifice back to him. So here's what we would say to ourselves. We would say something like, this is what it really means to live for God. This is what it means to live for Jesus, to love him with all my heart. What does that look like? It means to be used up, to be poured out, to be burned up, to be bled out. Do you guys understand the sacrificial system that when you're, when you're watching this, this is what you're seeing? You're not seeing something goes behind a, a curtain and you know an animal dies. You're watching an animal die for you. Then you see Jesus die, bleed out for you. The implication is that you are to live a similar lifestyle. You and I are supposed to live a similar lay to be bled out so tr and then to trust God that he's going to bring us joy and bring us fulfillment as we get closer to him, as we live that kind of life. And some of you are like, man, Pastor Joe, that's a high price. <clears throat> I can remember being a, a teenager and sitting in church, and these missionaries would come and, uh, you know, speak at our church and stuff, and they would talk about 
Guam or the jungles of the Philippines or something like that. And I was like, heck no. Like, no, no, I am not doing that. And if that's what it means to be a Christian, double no. I, I am not doing that stuff. Let me, let me just raise the bar a little bit higher for us this morning, okay? Let's go beyond the, the jungles of the Philippines and Peru and whatever else we think God might call us to do. If you're just looking at the cross and the sacrificial life that Jesus is calling to you, calling you to, and all you see is death and loss, you're looking at it from an Old Testament lens. If you look at this life that Christ is calling us to, a sacrificial life of living for him, and you know that you are his, you will realize that every time you die to yourself and you sacrifice for him, you will rise again. There is a future resurrection that will occur where our bodies will come back, and I understand that, but I think as daily as you lay yourself down and you die to self and you live for someone else and you sacrifice yourself for somebody else, you experience the new life of Jesus, the resurrection, rise again, life of Christ daily and eternally. So I think that you're going to see that theme. I'm going to come back to that theme uh, a couple of times as we go through this today. Look in verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, now who are we talking about? Jesus. So when Jesus comes into the world, this is what he says. He says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. God hasn't desired those things. But a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, you have not taken pleasure of them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament point to a very particular need. You have animals dying. You have you know, bulls and goats dying. You have all these things, and they're, they're animal bodies. They're not human bodies. Animals didn't offend God in the garden. Bulls and goats didn't sin in the garden. People did. We did. Had God come and required that penalty from us, we would never take a breath in this world. We would die. Someone, some human, had to come and be this sacrifice. All these sacrifices point to a human body. There had to be a human body in which there was a human will that continually chose to depend upon the Father, that continually chose to obey the written word and submit to it all the way to the sacrifice on the cross. There is no natural human that can do that. There is no natural human that can do that, that can submit their will for 33 years on this planet to accomplish the written will of the Lord of, of God which is to sacrifice himself, to die, not for his sins, but for our sins, other people's sins, his enemy's sins. All those sacrifices point to that. Christ came to take this body that God gave him and to lay it down for us, and it was the only sacrifice that would work. So I want to take that imagery, and I want to challenge us again. 
what if, what if this is what God really wants from us? What if the same spirit, the same attitude, the same mindset that Jesus had, which I would point you to Philippians chapter 2 and answer, yes, this is what he wants from us. What if this is what God wants from us? A body and a willing spirit. If Jesus is not just our example, but he is our example, what if, as he came and said, God has given me this body and I willingly submit my will to his will, what if that's what he wants us to do? To take this body that he's given us and then to submit our will to what he wants us to do. God, it says here, it's clear, God never, think about this, God was never pleased with sincere devotion or religious practices. He's not asking you for your Monday night rest or your Wednesday night sanctus or your Thursday morning accountability group or your commitment to some Uganda sponsorship. God's not standing in heaven right now going, say, okay, Dallas, thanks for going to Uganda. And because you went to Uganda, man, you're in. Thank you for doing that for me. And because you've done that, you are in. Am I not a kind God, Dallas? Am I not benevolent to you? That because you gave me a trip to Uganda, I let you in. God's not standing in heaven saying, give me all these things, and you're okay for today unless I change my mind. I'm, am I not kind? Am I not a kind God to let you in and then maybe tell you what the rules have changed to? What if what God wants is a body and a will that says this? Okay, God, I get it. Jesus died on a cross, and he rose again, and that alone is plenty enough to get me to you. Nothing else has to be added to it. I get it. Nothing else has to be added to it to get me to you. Jesus guarantees me that I can stay near to you because of that. Not to get it, because of that, you can have all of me. Because you really are altogether lovely and good and true and wonderful. All the way, every day, I will sacrifice everything and I will give my life to you. Use me up for your glory. What if that's what God wants? Not to be a good mom, not to be a provider for your family not to live in a nice house, not to be comfortable, not to be healthy, not to live a long life. What if this is what God wants? I have secured your soul with my Father in heaven for eternity. And our natural response is, oh, you can have it all. I'll sacrifice myself daily for you because you really are wonderful. Amen? What if, what if that really is what God wants from us? He brings up this picture of the tabernacle again. Look in verse 11. He says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away your sins. Second time he's referenced that. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. 
He brings up the tabernacle. You know, in the tabernacle, there's no chairs. If you know anything about it, it's a big room. Let's just say it's a big room that's been subdivided, okay? About a third of it is used for the Holy of Holies. The back has tables, and there's candles, and there's bread. There's places where people can come in and do some ministry. There's a 14-inch, 14, a 15-foot-tall, 15-foot-wide, 4- to 6-inch curtain. There's a box inside of that with angels on top of it. There ain't no chairs. But I can tell you in heaven there's at least two chairs. God's throne, where the Lord God, Father Almighty, sits and rules and reigns. And then there's a chair right beside him. We can, maybe it's a bench. I don't know. Right beside him. And Jesus Christ sits on it, and he sits because he's done. He's finished. He's not making sacrifices anymore. He's not doing any more work to get for you anything he wants to get for you. It's done. So he sits at the right hand of God, next to the throne of God, on the throne of God, however we want to say that. Maybe the love seat of God, right? I don't know what it is. Because he's already done the work to save your soul and to transform your soul. He has done it, and he is doing it now, which means we're supposed to live like it. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road, y'all, and we're going to really hammer on this today. Do you have a problem with anger? Do you struggle with laziness? Do you struggle with self-doubt and self-hatred? Do you struggle with gluttony? Do you struggle with, man, I really need to get into the word. I really need to pray more. Do you struggle with giving generously to other people? Can I tell you what scripture says about you? Are you ready to really hear this? Because I think it's kind of mind-blowing and overwhelming. Scripture says you're holy. Past tense. Four times in this passage alone it says that. You are holy. He is making you holy. Now go live like you're holy. This is the New Testament message, guys. God has taken you unworthy as you are, made you holy. He's making you holy. Now go live like you're holy. So listen, I do think we got to be careful that we don't live into holiness. There's a holiness that's already there that you're expressing. Maybe we should say it that way. You're not earning holiness. You are holy. See? And Jesus is making that holiness come true in you more and more daily. Jesus is done, and he's bringing that to completion in you and me every day. We have to go live like it. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected, past tense, we've already seen it once, here it is again, he sanctified us, now he's perfected us. For all time, those who are sanctified, past tense, and the Holy Spirit is also testifying to us, saying, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Amen? Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. We can live this life, we can live this daily life here on this planet close to Jesus. And we can lay ourselves down for other people. We can daily sacrifice ourselves because of what Jesus has already done. He quotes here from Jeremiah 31. It's the second time he's quoted. Jer uh, Hebrews chapter 8 was the other time. He takes this same passage and he says it again. Listen, if somebody repeats something, it's important. If somebody repeats something, it's important. I just did it. Okay, are you paying attention? He's repeated himself. 
Two chapters earlier, three chapters earlier, he used the same exact passage and he uses it again. Jeremiah 31, I will write my law on their hearts and on their minds. This is the future. We are living in the future that Jeremiah prophesied. It's now. And it's here because of Jesus. So this this is what this means. What the? This is what this means. Got stuck in a loop there. (laughs) Obedience to God is no longer about obeying an external rule, but following God from our hearts and being empowered by God to really change and then to love to obey. I want to say that again. There's a whole bunch in there. Obedience to God is no longer about obeying an external rule, but following God from our hearts and being empowered by God to really change and then to love to obey. I have two kids. They're quasi-adults now, right? There are a lot of kids in the room. Do not raise your hand. Don't lie. That's probably the biggest thing. How many of you enjoy obeying your parents? Don't you lie. Okay, probably nobody should totally raise their hand. Okay. I think we enjoy obeying our parents when they're like, okay, if you eat this, you'll get ice cream. I'm in. I love you, mom and dad. Okay, right? I will obey and get ice cream, right? Kind of a thing. I love obeying you in those moments. But there's a lot of times we don't enjoy, we don't love obeying our parents. God's much the same way, right? Here's what's awesome about what God's doing in our hearts, guys. Not only do I reach a point where I can fulfill the things that God's requiring, like just read Matthew 5. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. It is daunting. It's overwhelming. How do I do that? God's got to change me radically. So not only is God changing me radically to be able to do what he's asking me to do, he's making it where I love it. I love to do. I love to do what you're telling me to do. And that's, that's like freeing, isn't it? That's a message you don't hear in a lot of Christian churches, much less non-Christian churches. We're not telling you to be good. We're telling you God's going to change you so you can be good, and you'll want to. <laughs> you'll really, really want to, not for fear and not to try to earn something because you love God. Man, there's freedom there. There's life there. We are no longer, this is what this means. We're, we're, we can't say anymore, well, that's just the way God made me. Well, that's just my personality. So I'm going to throw out another huge statement here that I think everything begins to pivot off of. If we are going to say, and we are rightfully going to hold to the theology that says that the current effects of the resurrection are not physical healing and things in this world, but it's character transformation, you better lean wholeheartedly into that. Are you guys catching me? We are not saying in our church that the current effects of the resurrection for you are you'll get stuff and you'll be happy and you'll have a job that you love, and you'll never get sick, and you'll have a big house. We're not saying that's the effect. That's another church down the street, by the way. That ain't here. We're not saying that's the effect of the resurrection. We are saying the effect of the resurrection is God has saved you from your sins, and he is transforming your character daily into the image of Christ. You know what that means for you every day? Lean into that. Lean hard into that. Quit playing around with that. If we're really saying that's what the effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, you and I have no excuse to not grow up and mature in every way in our faith. Are you changing at your core? Are your loves changing? Is your heart changing? Your fears, your beliefs, 
your dreams, your longings. The current effect of the cross is that it saves your soul, it rebirths you, and it renews you, and it recreates you daily, moment by moment. Because that's true, it is true. So because that's true, let's quit using our Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs background or life's difficulties or pain or challenges as excuses not to be changed. Is that too hard? Because we have said this morning and said amen to the fact that Jesus died on a cross to write his laws on our heart to change us so that we can live like him. Why are we putting up all these excuses to act like we have not been changed in our souls and our hearts? What an affront to the cross of Christ. Since that's true, since he has written his law on our hearts and our minds, you and I can experience radical life change today because we are not the same. He is changing us. We have to live into what he's already done in us. This is what's awesome here. The next thing, which is the most overwhelmingly amazing thing, I think probably in the text, he says, I will never again, by no means ever, remember their sins or their lawless deeds. It doesn't work in the English, but this is really what it says in the text. It's all these double negatives, and it's thrown on top of each other because he wants to be really clear about it. I will never again, by no means ever, remember their sins or their lawless deeds. Never, ever, 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 never, never, ever, ever. Your heart, your mind, your emotions can be set free forever by the eternally effective sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Here's what God is saying to you, and this is overwhelmingly amazing. I will never bring up your sin against you and use it against you. Guys, I can't even forget my own sin. And I'm fallen, and I, I, I'm a broken man. I can't scrub it out of my brain. God's like this eternally perfect God who can't forget anything. What does he say? I will never bring up your sin and use it against you. I will never take your sins into consideration when it comes to determining who gets into my eternal kingdom. I will never appeal to your sins as grounds for condemning you. God promises us that he will not remember our sins. He, this is great. He will not remind himself of our failures. And he will not remind us of our failures. Amen? They play no part in determining our relationship with God. I can be eternally in union with Christ. I don't lose that. But I may not always experience communion with him. And that's the struggle that we feel. We feel like God's maybe condemning us, but really I'm condemning myself. I'm carrying my guilt. I'm trying to do my own way back to him. So verse 10 and verse 14 talk to us about the fact that we've been perfected. We've been sanctified through the work of Jesus Christ. That is past tense. Something that's happened in the past has a lasting effect into the future. What our Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do, what our works can't do, what church can't do, what your family can't do, what sincerity and religious practice can't do, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. He has given us his holiness so we can know God. Because it made him happy. Because it gave God pleasure. He has given us his holiness so that we can know God. 
we are sanctified and perfected so that we can have a relationship with God and we can love to do what he has told us to do. We're going to wrap up. What shadow are you holding on to instead of holding on to Christ? A shadow is the projected image of a blocked light source. There's light shining, something blocks it, and the shadow is the projected image of what's blocking the light. A shadow is the darkness that results from an absence of light. The longer we hold on to things like being embarrassed over our past sins, imposing everybody else's failure on them, this is when you think you got saved to be everybody else's Holy Spirit. Right? Constantly bringing up everybody's failures to them. Or if you could just be more holy and righteous like me. God's not doing that. Why are you doing that? As long as you hold on to being embarrassed by your sins, imposing everybody else's failures on them, treasuring church and decency and morals over a relationship with God, feeling like you have to make up for your sins, you're holding on to a shadow and not the light. Those are shadows. Every time you hold on to an Old Testament sacrificial system and priests and all that, and you think modern worship songs and some devotional time are going to bring you to Jesus, here's what I want to say. All they do is point to Jesus. They just point to the light. They're not the light. They just point to him, which is living in Christ and knowing Jesus and being with God all the time daily. We can trust in Christ to bring us close to God or we can continue to try sacrifices. When you are guilty, when you sin, don't offer sacrifices. Here's what happens in our minds. Some of us are like, man, I really messed up this week. I got to go to church and take communion. I really hope we have communion this week because that's going to bring me back to God. Or I've sinned for several years. I need to get baptized again. And if I'll just sacrifice myself, embarrass myself, and go, oh, I messed up, and I stand in front of people and I get baptized again, I'll get back in good graces with God. Emotional worship. Somehow convincing ourselves that we're clean and acceptable to God. I love the song, He Loves Us. Sometimes I hate it because I think we're trying to argue ourselves into something and feel it so deeply emotionally that somehow it becomes truer than before we sang the song. We're not into some kind of spiritual Satan where we have to beat ourselves up and feel bad enough and repent and then our guilt goes away. Those are sacrifices. You are adding to the sacrifice of Jesus, trying to. Your relationship and your standing with God is secure because of what Jesus has already done. Stop trying to add to it. The removal of your guilt is not dependent on your sacrifice. His sacrifice is taking it away. So when we come to him and confess, we're totally relying on that. Not the sincerity or the depth of your confession. Are y'all catching, following me here? Those are attempts at self-sacrifice to get something from God. It's already been secured in Jesus. We're just responding to it, trusting it. Otherwise, he should kill us, right? At nighttime, when you go to bed as a believer and all these thoughts are racing around in your head and you've made bad mistakes, you've lived in a season of bad mistakes, you've sinned, you've rebelled against God, you've chosen to, let's just call it what it is, we've got to start there, right? I didn't, didn't make mistakes. You sinned, you're living in rebellion, you've chosen to trust something else, you, you're an idolater, we just got to call it what it is. 
and you're at nighttime and you're wrestling with this, I think you can go to bed in one of three states of mind. One, you could be terrified of losing your relationship with God unless you try harder. Two, you could be terrified of God using your sins against you and rejecting you forever. Three, I'm going to opt for door number three. You can be content in the work of Jesus to erase your sins, to bring you to God, to keep you close to him, and to change you daily so that you want to be a willing, living sacrifice for his glory and his worship. Amen. I take door number three. Guys, we are perfected and we're being made perfect. We are holy and we're being made holy. We're sanctified and we're being sanctified. We've been given new hearts and we're being given new hearts. We're being made new in every way. What are we supposed to do with this? Sing songs? Feel bad about how we feel bad about something we shouldn't have felt bad about? You know, like what's our response supposed to be about the sacrifice and how God's brought, Jesus has brought us, you know, supposed to do verse 19, therefore, brethren, therefore, because of that, sacrifice paid, you don't have to do anything else. Because of that, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God. Listen to his word. Worship him. Guilt can keep you away from God. Embarrassment can keep you away from God. You feel like you let God down. Or maybe some point came where you could do, be courageous and you weren't courageous. You shrunk away from it or you did it in an ugly way. It was really just fear bursting out of you. And you're like, oh, God, man, he's not going to like me anymore. i got to stay away from him. I'm going to clean myself up, and then I'll come back to God. You know what God says to you? God says, draw near. This is what's amazing. God should say, stay away. But what does he say? Draw near. In your brokenness, in your sin, in your rebellion, I have paid the price so that you can draw near. Draw near. I've perfected you, and I am perfecting you. I know you're not a finished product. I know that you are relationally struggling with me, and you daily struggle with sin, and you daily struggle with doubt and idolatry. I know that, but don't stay away from me. Draw near to me. The God of the universe is asking you, I would say commanding you, let us draw near. Come as close to me as you can, and I will whisper reminders to you in your heart of how precious you are to me, the work that I'm doing in you, the love that I have for you, the things that I'm going to do in you, and I'm going to remind you that I am renewing your heart, and I will give you the daily desire to love me and to love to do my will. Draw near. I don't get that when I stay away. I get self-condemnation and guilt when I stay away. When I come close, I get grace. And I get reaffirmation of my relationship with him. God, we thank you for this word today. You are so good. You are so kind. You are so gracious. God, I pray that you would rescue us 
from feeling like we have to do more. You would rescue us from feeling like we have to uh, add to what you've already done. Father, I pray that you would rescue us from the distance that sin can cause in our hearts from you. And God, that we would draw near. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that made this possible. And I pray this week, God, that we go out of here, we would love to do your will. You're changing us, renewing us. We would pray this prayer, God, keep me close to you. Give me your heart. I will be a daily sacrifice. Pour me out. Use me up for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Great to see you guys. I know Jerry's going to tell us some things on the way out this morning. Uh, uh, thank you so much for being here, man. Uh, this is like first step, baby steps. Um, we're probably going to ask you guys for some